Hi, I'm Teresa Wezor, your host of One in 10. In today's episode, Beyond Pride, Can Kids Trust Us When They Tell Us Who They Are? I speak with Al Killen Harvey, president and co-founder of the Harvey Institute, about how child abuse professionals can better support LGBTQ youth and their families. June is Pride Month, and many of our organizations recognize and celebrate it, hang safe place decals on the wall and add a rainbow flag to our decor. But what are we really doing to treat LGBTQ youth as our kids and to ensure that they have equity and services and strong organizational support the other 11 months of the year? This is a critical time for the child protection and CAC community to be allies for these kids. As you'll hear in our conversation, nearly two dozen states have considered anti-trans bills and some, most dangerously, whether through legislation or executive action, have made it difficult, if not impossible, for trans youth to receive gender-affirming care. What can we do to ensure that child abuse investigations aren't politicized? How can we identify and overcome our own biases and lack of knowledge to provide better care for these kids and their families? And how do we open our own hearts to create a welcoming and inclusive community where all kids can thrive? I know you'll be as interested in this conversation as I am. Please take a listen. Hi, Al. Welcome to One in Ten. Thank you so much. I'm very honored to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. So even though um, I feel like we've known each other for a while, I don't know if I've ever asked you, how did you get involved in child trauma work originally? What brought you to this? I appreciate the question. Yes, sir. We have, we have met a number of times, but never really had the, the privilege of, a, of an in-depth conversation. Um, my journey is, is a, a kind of a circuitous one, so I'll keep it quite brief. My original uh, career plan and path was as an accountant. So my undergrad degree is in accounting, uh, and I actually did work in the for-profit field as an internal auditor for about 10 years. But interestingly enough, in retrospect, I only took accounting because I actually wanted to teach math. And I am of an age where when uh, I was uh, looking at career possibilities, the baby boomer generation was ending. And so teaching jobs were not very plentiful. So my guidance counselor suggested I take some other profession that was similar to math that I could maybe teach, which was accounting. And then it ended up uh, that I had to actually be an accountant (laughs) for a while, which was not the plan. Uh, But anyway, I did it for a number of years, realized it was not very fulfilling for me and realized thinking back over my, I was an RA in college. I was a peer counselor in college, realizing I was really just drawn to things that really allowed me to more interact with folks and be a part of their respective journeys. So I left uh, the field, went back and I got my master's degree in social work and then entered the field. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do other than to work with youth and adolescents in particular, which was always my passion. But in my very first placement uh, in my graduate program, I was put in an organization that worked uh, with youth with trauma histories. And literally within a couple of weeks, I was I was smitten. It was like, this is it. This is the this is the place I want to be. These are the these are the folks I want to try to work with and support in any way I can. So that began my 30 year career in the child trauma arena. So, Al, you know, over the 30 years you were talking about, you've done many different things clinically. And I'm just wondering how you began to focus on the unique needs of LGBTQ youth and their families. Uh, 
That's a, a great question. And for me, uh, I think it comes about from like, I believe for many of us in this profession, there's certainly a personal element to it, as well as a professional sort of curiosity and passion that sort of led me there. Uh, I am an out gay cisgendered male. Uh, so from the beginning of my clinical work, uh, I was certainly aware of my own journey and my own struggles around that part of my identity. And so kind of kept that in the back of my head. I never really intended to incorporate that into my work specifically. Now, bear in mind, I'm of a certain age uh, such that 35 years ago, those were separated. You kept your personal life and your personal identity very separate from what you did at, at your job. And I certainly couldn't even imagine being really fully out as a gay man back then uh, in my work environment. There would have been tremendous risks. But it was it was back there. And so I would listen maybe with a with a, a, an extra sensitivity to some of the adolescents that we were working with at the agency that I was working with and could hear and kind of perceive some of the, the kind of the, the coded messaging around feeling uh, different, feeling like they didn't fit in, wondering if there was something wrong with them. They didn't have the language for it necessarily, but they certainly were implying it. And consciously and unconsciously, probably, I sent out a message to them as well saying, in essence, if you want to talk about this, I might be able to be somebody you could talk about. So eventually what began to happen was several of my clients came out to me and I began to realize maybe I could incorporate both my own personal journey into my professional passion and looked around and didn't really see very many people doing that, uh, particularly when it came to talking about sexual orientation and gender identity with children and adolescents. Uh, there was very little of that going on in the field at the time. So uh, with a colleague of mine, Heidi Sternellis, at the Chadwick Center Radio Children's Hospital here in San Diego, we over 28 years ago put together a workshop on just kind of basic 101 around sexual orientation for our child maltreatment conference. And that really kind of opened up a pathway for me to begin to really, really explore this arena more, to begin to look at what research, if any, was out there, and to begin to develop some intervention strategies for folks that really wanted to be a bridge for those youth. And when you look at sort of the child abuse arena in terms of professionals who work in it, and you think about what has happened over that, you know, 28, 30 years since you put together that first presentation, how welcoming, how sensitive do you feel our field is for these kids and families? I guess I'm just going to leave it there <laughs> <laughs> and let you answer that because I almost wanted to myself. Go ahead. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to pull that apart into a sub question and then, then your very specific question. Let me talk historically and then use that as a yes. frame of reference to where I feel like we are now. So I'm, I'm going to channel back to that very first presentation that I remember Heidi and I giving you know, 28 years ago. And at a very, you know, at that point, very large child maltreatment conference here in San Diego, we did the workshop. It was surprisingly well attended, I will say, uh, given the fact that that had never been presented at that conference before or very seldom at any child maltreatment conference. But the audience was, uh, not to our surprise, uh, pretty much of folks who professionally or personally identified um, mm -hmm. with the community. So mm -hmm. we had a group of gay and lesbian professionals in the audience, um, mostly there for their own need. So they were really coming to just not feel alone as 
gay and lesbian professionals working in the field, not so much necessarily about interventions for the youth that they served, because we were quite isolated from one another. Many of us weren't necessarily even out within our own organizations. Uh, so that would speak to the fact that the organizations themselves were doing very little, uh, if any, outreach. We did have people come with materials like Bibles and other sorts of things uh, to condemn what we were talking about. Uh, we were accused of actually causing child maltreatment by talking about issues around sex and gender with children and uh, young adults uh, because we would overwhelm them. We would confuse them. We were accused of uh, trying to convert individuals and which is a euphemism for change their sexual orientation from heterosexual to something else or from cisgendered to something else. So the reception was sort of interesting. We were preaching to a small group of the choir, and then there was quite a bit of opposition to it. But little, if any, of those attendees could bring any kind of uh, specific policy or intervention that was being utilized in their agencies. It just wasn't happening at all. So fast forward to your more specific question. Now, um, first of all, I'm invited a lot, as are many of my colleagues, I'm invited more often than not to come to agencies, organizations, or conferences of CACs and other organizations that work uh, and do the kind of work that we do to specifically present on this uh, material. Uh, and so that's different. I will say, and this is strictly based on my anecdotal experience. I, I don't have research to support this, but I still do certainly feel uh, regional differences and geographic differences. When I go to different parts of the country, I will have a different level of receptivity to what I'm talking about. Um, I will have leadership there in, that's fully supportive and embracing of trying to build bridges for, uh, and I'm going to use the word just for edification today, for queer youth. Uh, that's my positive reframing of LGBTQIA+, so I use queer in the most positive of ways. I want the audience to be really clear on that. Uh, but so I will have leadership from organizations wanting very much to make sure their organization is fully embracing of this. I will have other uh, people representing an agency that are saying, I'm a lone wolf. I have to work around the policies. There's people in my organization still that don't think this is okay for us to be doing this. And I want to know how I can make change, you know, at a macro level. So we have, I have seen a tremendous change in 28 years, um, but I can't also say that we universally as a community of folks that work in the child maltreatment, uh, child welfare arena have fully incorporated and embraced this population. It's not true. We still have divisions. We still have many pockets of opposition and barriers to, to this being effectively safe for every queer kid to access one of our agencies and expect to be treated the same as everybody else. For child abuse professionals who are listening and they say, well, I really want our center to be as welcoming and supportive as it possibly can be, but I'm not really sure where to start. What advice do you have? I get that question a lot and I break it down into two components, each equally important and one more possible than the other sometimes. So I recognize that. So how I break that down is both at an organizational level and an individual level. I always believe and have stated for a number of years that if you effectively want to be uh, an organization and an agency that provides this sort of service to, to your queer clients, just like you do to all of your other clients, that has to stem from the top. That just does. Now, we'll get in a minute to what happens if you don't have that leadership support. So that's the second piece. But let me start with the first piece, because in an ideal world, that's where it's got to happen. And I say that not just because, you know, from an organizational point of view, that makes sense. 
There is also risk factor there as well. An example I often give. So if you are that, you know, that, that lone champion in your organization or one of only the few in your organization, I applaud you. And I'm glad that you're trying to make change. But you do what you can to outreach to the clients that you serve in your organization and agency. And that's wonderful. So you may make a difference with those couple of clients. But what happens to those clients that aren't fortunate in the agency and get you as the provider, as the advocate, as the forensic interviewer, as the, you know, whatever your role is in, in, your, in your CAC or your MDT? What happens if they don't get you and they get somebody else? What happens if they do get you and at some point in time, you have to make a transfer to someone else, uh, you leave or other situations happen. And now we've got a client who thinks it's okay for me to be totally honest about who I am because the person that I was working with totally embraced that. Now I'm working with somebody else and I bring my full self in and I get met with something else that's different, that may be judgmental, may be shaming, may be telling me that I can't be who I am. That's very confusing for me and maybe even a bit risky for me. So it is risky for our clients when we are operating without the full support of, of the organizational structure. So that's first and foremost. Can we change macro? Is leadership bought in, not just in a verbal way? Is that reflected in your mission statement? Is it reflected in your policies? And more importantly, is it reflected in your day-to-day -day practice? Because you can have all of that. I've worked with organizations, agencies that have an inclusive mission statement, have incredibly inclusive and diverse policies, and quite honestly, day-to-day -day practice doesn't match any of that. So all of that has to, be, has to be in alignment in order for this to work. Now, to the second piece. What if, nonetheless, I've tried, I've done what I can, at least for right now with the current leadership that I have, we're just never going to fully get to that place. Do I give up? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So I, I support you. You're not alone. There's many uh, champions that are working in agencies uh, that are trying to affect change. I, I encourage you to do what you can with the clients that you have. I encourage you to find support within the organization because you probably are not alone. There may be others that are trying to do that. And they may be doing it secretly as well because they know there isn't leadership support. So galvanize. This is incredible. Like a lot of what we do in, in the child maltreatment field, this is incredibly lonely work. <laughs> and um, we can get very tired and get very discouraged when we're trying to do it alone. And so leaning into peer support. There are also obviously a lot of us in the broader field that are doing this as well. Reach out to people that are doing trainings like ones I do and the ones a lot of my peers and colleagues do uh, to get support from them as well. So, so don't give up on that, but keep pushing for macro change as well, because that is ultimately going to be the only way that we create the safe space for all queer youth. So right now, in several states, as you know, there's been legislation and really a variety of it targeting trans youth and their families. And I'm wondering what you see as the mental, um, there are lots of implications to it, but what do you see as the mental health implications for those youth specifically? Yeah, this, uh, you know, this uh, podcast that, that you've invited me on, Teresa, which again, I'm so grateful and privileged to do. I mean, it's so timely. I know you're also planning to, to showcase it in, in June, which traditionally in most of the country is acknowledged as Pride Month. So that's great. So it's timeliness in that front is awesome. But as you mentioned, certainly what's happened in the past few months, though it's been going on for quite a while, but seems to have galvanized, uh, makes this even more important. 
To your question specifically, and I'm using my language. So again, for folks that are listening, I own everything that I say, uh, but, and I will tell you when it's based on what I know from research and then, and I'll tell you when it's based on my kind of personal languaging and my personal anecdotal experience. The conversation, if you will, that is happening right now adds such an incredible other level of emotional stress to, to all uh, queer and queer allied individuals across the country. We've all, always known, certainly those of us uh, adults that have, have worked in this field for some period of time, have always known that some of these belief systems are out there. There's no surprise to anything that I've heard o- over the past couple of months. But there is a shift that I hear and feel in a righteousness to now say it out loud. It, it was at least said secretly, maybe with uh, a little bit of shame in the past, but now it is boldly stated. And because of access to information, uh, because of the ways that sound bites can be disseminated now, uh, particularly in the younger generation, youth are hearing this stuff over and over and over again. They're hearing the support but oftentimes it gets overwhelmed by what they are hearing as the negative connotation of some part of who they are and how people feel about that and whether or not they're entitled to the same rights as someone else. And that message is being pummeled over and over and over again to them. And I see that as another level of emotional stress. There's a lot of emotional stress that comes um, with the, uh, uh, the, the process of acknowledging the whole part of who you are in terms of your sexual orientation and gender identity. And this adds a whole nother one. This is how youth are beginning to realize what is the world that I'm entering into? How am I going to be welcomed or not welcomed? What is my life going to look like? Because this is the broader community of people that I'm going to have to operate within. So when we see statistics, for example, and this is based on the science now, not just my anecdotal information, that queer youth have significantly higher rates of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation, it's no surprise, right? What, what, what's been disappointing for me is that statistic showing that sometimes up to three times as many, proportionally, percentage-wise, three times as many queer youth attempt suicide than their non-queer counterparts, that statistic has stayed almost universally true for over 30 years. We have actually data that's looked at that for a number of years. One would think, given where we are in our understanding of sexual orientation and gender identity, that 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 risk factor would have dropped by now. And it hasn't. And I think that's a clear reflection of no matter how many policies we change, no matter what the legal framework uh, and, and conversational changes, and there's been great strides in that, for youth, the reality is, is what's the viewpoint in my house? What's the mm. viewpoint in my neighborhood? What's the viewpoint in the school that I go to and the school bus that I have to ride on every single day? And if that's still a hostile environment, if that's still a transphobic environment, if that's still a homophobic environment, that's my world. Mm. And is that the world that I imagine a future in? And you can see why for some kids, the idea of a future of that every single day. And remember, youth don't oftentimes have partly because of brain formation and for other reasons, to a really an understanding of being able to look beyond just kind of where they are currently. To say to a kid, you know, with all due respect to this project that was out a number of years ago, which did some great work, it gets better. That's a lovely reassuring statement for those of us that are past that horrible stage. We can now say, yeah, you know, it did get better. That's a retrospective statement. That is not necessarily a statement of hope for a kid who every single day still has to face this kind of stuff every day. I'm, I don't imagine a 
better down the road. I got to figure out how to get through Tuesday and Tuesday is just hell for me right now. So this adds a whole nother layer of emotional stress for these kids. Well, I just think about, you know, this group of kids who are already often bullied, you know, at school and in their neighborhoods and those kinds of things. And now it's, it's as though legislatures and others are giving permission for more bullying. I mean, this has to be the way that it gets received by youth. It's like, is this never going to end? You know, and I can imagine how that could make someone feel very hopeless. One of the things I want to talk with you about and unpack a little bit is gender affirming care. And I just want to say to our audience that Al is not a physician and I'm not going to ask him physician questions. (laughs) So, so you're in safe hands there, but I do think that sometimes And especially in certain states where this whole discussion has gotten very heated, but not a lot of facts have been brought into the conversation. I want to make sure that we at least unpack a little bit what we're talking about, because I think there's a lot of misperceptions, misunderstandings, and those kinds of things. So for our audience, can you just talk about for trans youth, when we are talking about a parent and youth making a decision to pursue gender-affirming care, what are we describing? Right. Thanks for that question, and, and thanks for the clarification for folks as well. So I, I just want to echo that. I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm not a physician. But, but even the fact that we have to qualify that, I think, already speaks to one of the misnomers about gender-affirming care. I think when people hear the word gender-affirming care, they immediately go to gender-affirming surgery. Right. Mm, That's what it is. We're talking about literally, and I'm going to use vernacular that's not my own, but what I hear from other people, where literally people are thinking, oh, no, now you're going to make a boy into a girl or a girl into a boy and surgically change their body. And what if that was wrong? And what if they decide it was wrong later on? And how do they undo that? That is a complex area. That gender affirming uh, surgery is a complex area that clearly, clearly requires medical attention, advice, information, lots of research, all of that. But gender affirming care is much broader than that, much broader than that. But that's not how it's played out because it, it doesn't speak to the audience that it wants to be spoken to when it's used that way. Gender affirming care is can we whoever we are, parents, adults, uh, CAC leaders, et cetera, can we provide it an arena, a forum, uh, an experience for our clients to fully bring themselves to us wherever they fall in the gender continuum? Now, part of the challenge for a lot of us, particularly of a certain age, is not unlike sexual orientation, we believed, most of us, that gender operates on a binary, right? That gender was you are either male or female. It was a clear, differentiated distinction, and that was just it. We never even questioned it. Uh, Back to my my earlier trainings, when I, 28 years ago, when Heidi and I did our first presentation, it was on gay and lesbian youth. We didn't even talk about gender at that point. It it wasn't even an issue. It was there, uh, but we didn't have the knowledge, the information to even showcase it. Now we realize that not unlike sexual orientation, that gender operates in a much broader continuum. This is one of the things that if, if you have the opportunity in your community, go to a, a workshop on somebody that really understands gender and can take you through that journey of looking at your own gender expression and identity. And I think what many of you will find, certainly it's been my experience and a lot of folks that I work with, if we really were honest with ourselves, we realize that most of us operate in a much more fluid way around how we understand ourselves in terms of our gender, 
I do not strictly identify as male in the stereotypical ways. I do lots of things that are very feminine or female. A lot of that has to do with my culture and just who I am. My expression can move back and forth between quote unquote masculine and, and more quote unquote feminine. I'm doing it now. I use my hands a lot. I'm quite expressive, which in our culture, most people identify as more of a female quality than a male. I also have a deeper voice. I have broad shoulders, even though I'm a skinny little guy. Uh, those are male qualities, but there's a fluidity to the way that I am. And so to lock myself into one or the other category isn't really true, isn't really true. But that's been a interesting awakening for me just in the past few years. So this next generation of young folks are actually, for many of them, being born into and welcomed into a world where they're given a lot more room to allow for that gender fluidity. And gender-affirming care is, do we allow for that without us um, imposing a rigid binary on there that isn't okay? So differentiating that from the surgical procedures that can happen to also affirm one body, that's things like respecting somebody's gender pronouns. If I understand myself to be, even though I may look physically male to you, I identify as female, whatever that means to me. And I choose to have, my preference is that my pronoun is she. That's how I identify. Can I, as the clinician, can I, as the parent, can I, as the school teacher, respect that individual knows themselves more than I do? There's a presumption we put to this as well when we don't uh, provide this sort of gender-affirming care that we know better who somebody else is than they do. Why don't we allow our, our youth the opportunity to fully explore that and respect that along the way? I, I understand that's asking a lot. It's not as simple as it first sounds, but I do ask people to think when you hear gender-affirming care, think not only medically, think mental health-wise, think in terms of building one sense of, of self-esteem. The biggest pushback comes, you know, what if somebody... Uh, is, is expressing themselves in a way that doesn't match with their gender assignment at birth. And we support that. And then later on, they decide that that no longer worked for them. Now, bearing aside the, the gender affirming surgery, other than that, if I've done these other things to be provide a gender affirming response, what, what's the harm that I've done? I've mirrored where a child is for a while or an adolescent is for a while, and then they've switched to something else. Now, this is, I'm going to, at the risk of offending some folks, I'm going to give a very simple kind of analogy. I've been blessed with a lot of kids in my personal life, nieces, nephews, and other kids that I've been a part of their growing up years. I cannot tell you the number of times that they've wanted to be an astronaut, and then they wanted to be a doctor, and then they wanted to be a housewife, and then they wanted to be. And nowhere along the line was I ever criticized for as the uncle, as the neighbor, as the good best friend mirroring and being excited about whatever it was, wherever it was they were in that part of the journey. Even if two weeks ago, they told me something completely different, <laughs> completely different, but I supported that because there's no harm and they're trying to figure it out. That's part of a natural part of figuring out who I am. Why, when it comes to their gender, would I not do the same thing? Explore it, express it. As long as everything is consensual, not exploitive, you're not putting yourself at risk or someone else at risk. You're trying to understand who you are then go for it. Let's see where you land. And where you land right now may not be where you land a year from now. So then you adjust. We started this conversation off by talking, I thought I was going to be an accountant and it was for 10 years. Now, can you imagine if I lived in a binary around professions and people said to me, you can never do anything else but be an accountant because that's what you are. I'd be miserable. That's not who I am. Thank God I lived in a place where I was allowed to change and grow and people supported and affirmed me, even though they said, well, that's what you wanted to do before and good for you, you tried it and it didn't work. And now you're finding what you want to do now. 
That's gender affirming response, at least in my simplistic way of kind of looking at it. I really appreciate you distinguishing this from, uh, because I do think that the way this is out in the media is like the, like the most extreme examples right away get covered. And that's true about anything, not just this area, but it has some people so amped up about gender affirming surgery, which is not even a thing until people are over the age of 18 and they're an adult and can decide for themselves. So, and that requires, you know, without getting into a lot of detail, that still requires medical assessments, mental health assessments, and other things. There's no one out there just picking up a pair of scissors or a scalpel and having a heyday. So it's frustrating to me personally to hear it talked about in that way, or as though that would be done to children. It's just not the case. And I think even in our own field, people may not be aware that, you know, 22 medical associations have supported gender affirming care in this broad way that you're describing it. And that, you know, frankly, they're in a position to judge what that would be. And I appreciate the sort of science that they brought to that um, question as well. But I really appreciate this frame about what we can do in our own conversations and our own support for kids, families, peers that we're a part of that gender affirming care and response ourselves in the way that we're treating people and the way that we're listening to them and the way that we're being respectful. Mm -hmm. What I'm curious about is, you know, when I listen to you talk about this, Al, it's very common sense. It's like, yes, it makes total sense to me that if someone wants to try something Mm -hmm. and let's say a year later, they decide that's not for them, who really cares about that? It's no different than any of these other things. Why do you think that some people seem to feel very threatened by this? And while you think about that question, I just want to tell our listeners about something that happened to me with this, which was very interesting. So right after this initial piece of legislation, what wasn't even legislation, Governor Abbott in Texas put out a statement and sort of directed CPS to begin um, investigating trans families. I made a public statement that just said CACs have no business, which I stand firmly behind, by the way, CACs have no business being any part of this. It's just wrong to politicize um, the child abuse investigations, mistreat trans kids, like for so many reasons. We're better than this, people. We have no business being any part of this. It was interesting. People reached out with support. That was wonderful. But I had some folks reach out including one who went to all the trouble of writing me an actual letter, if you can believe it, who writes letters these days, to express their dismay and upset about this. Now, I'm not making fun of anybody, but folks, honestly, I cannot for the life of me figure out why anybody would feel so threatened and upset that some poor child somewhere might get support that they need and we're not adding to their persecution. So I just... I'm going to be honest, Al, I, it just, I'm puzzled. Yeah. Where yeah. does that sense of threat and anger and all of that reside? It's such a great question, Therese. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you sharing and being vulnerable and sharing the experience that you had as well and, and how that really sort of amplified that for you. You know, there's, there's not a, I don't think there's a, there's a simple answer to this. Well, there might be. <laughs> um, the simple answer is that, first of all, this works, right? Playing this card this way works. We know that. Why it works is a little more complicated. And I think that's part of the reason that it works. It works for different reasons with different people. One of the experiences that I have, and I try to be empathic in this regard, when I am working with families, for example, that this 
you know, the, the initial response is very much, oh, no, this is not OK. There's something wrong. Some of that, first of all, comes from a lack of information and education. Right. So I start there with do they really understand what this is? Do they understand what it means? Uh, so trying to provide some some basic information around gender. Now, again, uh, this is going to be changing over the next you know, 20, 30, 40 plus years. But up until now, most of the folks that are in the age of being parents have still come from a generation where issues around gender weren't talked about. We didn't understand the fluidity of gender. Uh, and so we bring that mindset to us, even as parents. So first and foremost was a lack of really good, comprehensive information and education around what gender is and how complex it is. Secondly, and this is very similar to issues around sexual orientation that I find, many times parents are hesitant, worried, afraid, opposed, also because it wasn't their own journey, right? So if it wasn't my journey, this isn't always overtly said, but it's, it's certainly clearly implied, then all of a sudden I feel like I've lost my power and authority of a parent. I can't guide my kid through something that I didn't go through myself. I have had some parents actually connect the dot and realize that that's what their fear was. If you're working clinically or in an advocacy role with a parent that does that, that's gold, you know, mind that baby, right? Because we have to remind parents that they guide their kids through lots of things that were not their own personal journeys. And, but this one always feels so much more different for parents, you know? So there is this sense of, I can no longer guide my kid if they're exploring this area of gender that wasn't mine. I was cisgendered. I was quite clear that my gender assignment matched who I knew myself to be. And so my, my kid's on their own and I feel like an incompetent parent. So we have to assure them they still have so much they can guide their child with. And yes, they may need to bring in some additional resources uh, to supplement the piece of that, that journey that was not their own. So some of it comes from that. Some of it interesting, and we won't, we, I know you and I are both trying to be very careful here to, to navigate the political line here, but this obviously speaks to the base. What's ironic to me about this is, is it's now being uh, sold as, you know, this is sort of government interference in your personal life, right? Because we're playing it out at school. This, this is where it's really being played out is at a school level. And there has been a, a very clear well thought out, long thought out process of changing local school boards for years and years and years to get into this position now so that these kinds of policies play out at a school level, right? Which is where kids spend the vast majority of their time. And so now if we have a school board that embraces queer youth, we've got a government authority that's telling parents how they can be parents, which is such a flip from so many other issues where so all true. of a sudden we don't want the government telling us, right? The same folks that don't want government in their life want government in their life all of a sudden. In these, it's just a fascinating sort of flip, but it appeals to an emotional base and the response is such, right? I still don't believe, and I may be really naive, I still don't believe that it represents a majority of the culture here in the United States. I don't. And I think our current elections show that as well. But that doesn't matter because it reflects the components of our country that still make or break government policy. And that's all it has to appeal to. It does not have to appeal to the majority. It only has to incite just the group that is the swing vote around things. And so for those of us that think differently, we have to remember that. We have to remember that there are more of us than them. And we have to get this information out and we can't get discouraged as much as discouraging as it can be, because when we get discouraged, we stop going 
to the polls. We stopped doing uh, the advocacy work. We stopped really trying to fight the fight. And then it becomes, you know, set in stone. That's what is being banked on here. But I don't believe that in tr if you truly uh, ask in an anonymous way across the board that the overall value of this country is such that they would exclude uh, trans and, and queer youth, that they wouldn't be fully emotionally supportive. I think we'd be amazed at what the numbers really are. And I think we do. You know, when you think about, and there's such a variety of this legislation out there right now, but when you think about it, what do you worry about most as it relates to the trans youth themselves? Back to our, your, you know, your earlier question to me, first and foremost, I worry about that, as you so beautifully articulated, uh, that message that it sends to them about what the rest of the world thinks about them. And on a micro level, to one kid, that may be the last piece of the puzzle in terms of do I want to be here any longer? Do I want to be, I'm 13, can I imagine being 14? What if this is the world you're telling me I'm entering into? Not only am I putting up with this in my high school and somebody said, well, wait till you get to college. Now I'm watching what's going on in the news and I'm seeing what's being said by, you know, adults and professionals and politicians and leaders and spiritual leaders and all the other communities that I, and they're saying these things as well. If I'm weighing, do I have a future? Do I want to live, uh, you know, another day, another week, another year? That could be part of the factor. And I, and I, I know that's a, a bit, you know, a little bit of hyperbole here, but I don't think it's completely that. And so my fundamental worry is for those individual kids that are really weighing what life looks like in the future and our current conversation in this country may be a factor that causes them to decide that they want to take their life. And I think that's very real and worrisome. I think it's very real and worrisome too. I just am wondering, you know, as child abuse professionals, what can we do, you know, to help, especially, I mean, especially these trans kids who are hearing this terrible messaging just all the time. And if you're in one of these states, it has to be on the news morning, noon, and night. It's a part of every, you know, talk show on the radio and everything else. So you're just being bombarded with these messages. Then let's say you're a children's advocacy center worker, director, you've got these kids in the door. How can we be good allies? What do we need to be thinking about and doing? Great question. You know, a couple of things come to mind when you ask that. First of all, I'm going to, with your permission, expand that question a little bit and still put an emphasis on your question. This conversation that's going on, this quote unquote debate that's going on, affects not only our, our queer youth, it affects our, our other youth as well. This is also a real generational change. I work clinically with kids who, who self-identify as heterosexual and cisgendered and yet are passionate about their queer colleagues being you know, part of this conversation. And they're equally angry and hurt and confused and frightened by what they're they're hearing. So this conversation is impacting many of our youth, regardless of where they fall in the sexual orientation and gender continuum. I think, of course, we all know that we need to be careful around our own boundaries, right? So the first thing we have to look at is what is my role? What is my professional role in my organization? Uh, what are the professional boundaries around my interaction with my clients? So understanding that we never want to cross that. We want to be really, and if you're unclear about that, or at times you feel like that's starting to happen, supervision, 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 
always, always, always go to supervision and say, look, this is coming up for me. Or I found myself starting to say this to a kid and realized it was probably more about me than him or her or them. And so I need to talk about this. So don't be afraid to talk to your peer supervision or your, your official clinical supervision. And I hope everybody has supervision of some sort, regardless of what your role is in a CAC. You cannot do this work without having somebody else to bounce this stuff off of. So working within the boundaries, however, I think it is, uh, depending on your role, it is a topic that is important for us to look at. I do it. I I try not to be um, too provocative with my clients. I just work off of what they bring me. But kids are bringing this stuff into the session all the time. You know, Um, sometimes I'll just ask them, you know, how's your day going? It's been okay. Tell me a little bit about your day. Everything's good. Do you hear anything today that made you really excited? Did you hear anything today that made you really kind of worried? Did you hear anything today that left questions in your mind? Um, I sometimes throw those questions out, particularly with adolescents, you know, when you get that clunky, awkward stage of the session where nobody knows how to start or where to go. I kind of throw those out. It's amazing to me the number of times kids will say, well, yeah, my, my dad was just listening to something on the news on the way in. And, you know, some idiot is talking about not letting kids go to the bathroom they want. Oh, okay. So tell me a little bit about what you heard. Tell me, you know, what, what did you hear in that little clip on the radio or whatever it was? And then tell me what it feel like for you inside when you heard that. Now, I'm still not, I'm not doing, I'm not disclosing any of my stuff. I'm not I'm not leading the witness in any way. I'm just responding to the information that the client gave me. And I'm trying to do it in as neutral way and as, uh, you know, kind of non-judge. I, I don't want to say non-judgmental. We're all judgmental. Uh, when I do my talks on sexual health, we talk about not being non-judgmental, but learning how to suspend our judgment. So can I suspend my judgment for a few minutes? Because I may initiate that conversation and I have a kid that's saying, I think that's great because I don't want any of those kids in my bathroom. So I have to be equally present for that kid as well, right? For him, her, or them to be able to tell me where they're coming from. But there are ways to, to ask that sort of question. In nonverbal ways, in terms of cues for us to be supportive of, of the youth that we serve without it having to be the focal point of the conversation. Things like, uh, this is a podcast, so you can't see this, but if this was a Zoom conference, you would see on uh, the bottom of my screen, I have my name and then I have my pronouns, he, him, his. That's just a quick and easy way for me not only to identify myself in terms of how I identify as uh, in terms of my gender, but it's also a quick and easy way for me to remind folks that we can't make assumptions around gender. So I'm sending a message out by that without even having to say anything. Do I have things in my office that reflect in any way the diversity of orientations around sexual orientation and gender identity? Um, Many uh, individuals may put things like uh, a rainbow flag, which is uh, one symbol of the queer community, Uh, may have a poster that has that up there. Books on your shelf that even just the words, you know, gay, lesbian, pan, trans, bi, whatever, uh, so that the, the words are in the space that you work in somewhere. So that a youth has some indication that first and foremost, you know, this array of diversity exists in the world. And then secondly, if I'm struggling with this issue, and if I maybe want to talk to somebody, I'm not quite sure who to talk to. Well, I'm more apt to talk to a person that at least has something in there that looks affirming around it than somebody that's a blank screen and has nothing. And yet, as for example, as a clinician, I've not crossed a boundary in any way. I've not entered it into the conversation. I've just allowed it to be there. So I think also being very mindful of what what kids say and bring into uh, our interactions as well. They oftentimes will slip a little something in just to kind of test it out to see if you're listening and if you're welcoming to it. So just pay attention. Don't be afraid to pick up on a word or a phrase that a kid has just sort of slipped in there and say, wait, 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 I want to go back for a second. You just said 
I'm just curious about that. What, what, what did that mean? Is there something you're trying to tell me? Be listening, because they're, they're very intriguing if they talk about this, how they're going to slip it in there. And the last thing I'll add, for those of you that have the ability to influence this, look at things like your intake forms, your assessment forms, any kind of uh, referrals that we give out to clients, you know, wide range of, of options for folks that they have to select in self-identifying or again, are there just things that force them into a binary? Even kids will pick up on that. Who's your mother? Who's your father? Or does your child identify as male or female? Those are binary terms. Uh, what else is in there? Kids are already starting to see from that sort of stuff. Do you, do you get me? Do you understand I'm out here? Is this going to be a welcoming environment for me? And things like our bathrooms. You know, A lot of us work for social service agencies that are housed in old buildings. <laughs> We're lucky if the plumbing works let alone do we have the options of, of creating you know, gender-neutral bathrooms. I know there's a lot of logistics with changing from a, a culture that has worked under a binary for so long. But again, that's a powerful statement when a kid walks in and has to even question, where do I go to the bathroom? Because the agency that's here to support me doesn't have something that reflects who I am. So walk through your agency, walk through your intake and your assessment process, and imagine you were a trans kid or a queer kid of some sort. Where are the places you'd feel welcomed and the places that you would feel othered in some way? And then see if there's a possibility to change that. So Al, what if I not ask you that I should have or anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? First of all, again, I just want to underscore what a, what a privilege this has been. I so respect you for your leadership in general. I always have. And for wanting to showcase this area in particular And what an honor that you asked me to be part of it. So I can't say that enough. I I guess the last thing I just throw out, because it's something I get asked a lot when I do my own trainings, uh, both by clinicians and by parents, many times that are wanting to make a difference. What do I need to do differently if I know my kid is gay or I'm concerned that my client is gay? And I gave you some suggestions of other things to be mindful of. But I also want to underscore that these kids are no different than other kids. (laughs) They really aren't. Uh, yes, they may have higher degrees of risk in certain areas, and so we have to pay attention. But we you know there's lots of populations of kids that we work with that have differing risks than other kids. But we don't think of them as different. We just think of them all as kids. Queer youth are youth. Trans youth are youth. They have the same hopes and dreams and desires and needs. And we don't need to rule ourselves out from being the helping other because it wasn't our lived experience, um, or maybe we don't even have a lot of professional experience. You know, if you want to make change, you can do it. Go to a few more workshops, study up a little bit, take a look at the research, but bring your true self to it. You don't need to be an expert in this arena. Uh, You need to have an open heart, an open mind, and a willingness to learn. And you can also learn from your clients. I have learned so many things about sexual orientation and gender identity by just asking my clients, even though I'm supposedly that quote unquote expert, right? Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that word? That experience is new for me. Can you explain that to me? The clients love, particularly adolescents, love to teach us. So don't be afraid to ask them and let them teach you a little bit. Your open heart and your curiosity will be such a a life raft for some of these kids. Uh, You may never know it. And you may even be changing the lives of kids that you didn't even know this was an issue they were struggling with. But by being mindful about the way that you approach it, uh, you may be the thing they hang on to till they're in a place where they have more support. I can tell you that from working with adults that told me, you know, there was somebody that said X, Y, and Z, and I never got to thank them, but I wouldn't have been here if they hadn't. So I hope that's a hopeful sign for people that are, are wanting to make a difference. And I commend the NCA for all they do on a policy level 
and on a day-to-day level to really let all of us know that queer youth are as entitled to our services as anyone else. So thanks for that. Love that. Don't count yourself out. Count yourself in and you can count us in. So thank you, Al, so much for joining us at 1 in 10. Thank you so much. What an honor and a privilege. Take care and happy Pride Month, everybody. (laughs) Happy Pride Month. Thanks for listening to 1 in 10. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And for more information about this episode or any of our others, please visit our podcast website at oneintenpodcast.org.